Freddie, man. You know, RC ain't here. He got to get pretty. You know, he got to do. We got we got one of them damn pretty-ass cappers coming on today. So he over there on iron and some shit, whatever. But, man, we had a good time with prize picks, bro. Yes, sir. It's so easy. Pick you a player, see what he going to do. If you think you know what he going to do, do it. And it's in 75% of states yep, right yep. now, including California, Texas, Florida, the big ones. We done have fun with everybody out there. Got to jump on, man. Prize picks. And if you use our promo code PIVOT, you're going to get all kind of good stuff. Hey, Chan, you forgot to tell them. Whatever they put in up to $100, we'll match it. But you got to put in Pivot promo code in order to get the money. Whatever you put in, they're going to double it up to $100. That's easy, just like the game. Get it in. Yeah, Freddie, NBA Finals right now, man. We're about to jump into it. We got a great show for you, but Prize Picks does it all. Hey, man, hockey right now in the playoffs. Baseball. You got baseball. You got, you got boxing. I'm telling you, Prize Picks, if you think you know what you're doing, yeah. look, get on Prize Picks. You know that much about sports? Go win some money talking about sports. And it's simple. You just picking players, baby. Get it in. Hold up. Limitless. Biggest to me, cap pinning it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, get me up. On the mission, get me up. Knowing me, I got the key. On the vision, I can trust. Trust. Limitless. Biggest to me, cap pinning it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, get me up. On the mission, get me up. What up, man? Oh, my yeah, God, though. My oh. guy, my guy. Doctor. My guy. What up, Dr. Myron Rowe? What's got, up, man? Got something for you, brother. Oh, appreciate it, appreciate it. The IQ oh, done went up. Appreciate it. The IQ done went up. Oh, my goodness. What's up with you, baby? What's up with you, baby? And look at this. Hey, man. The 2% way. Come on. Dr. Myron Rowe. Tell us a little bit about the book, man. Man, you know, it was a... A philosophy that my coach at Florida State, Mickey Andrews, sort of put on all of us, wanted us to get 2% better in everything we did, um, grab small levels of incremental growth every day, get better as a, an athlete and get better as a, a leader on the field. And I sort of extrapolated that mindset to life where if anything I do, any chance encounter I have, any video I watch, any book I read, I'm trying to grab 2% from that to add it to my own journey so I can change my trajectory. And so I wrote this book, it's like my story arc, but I inject the 2% mindset in any challenges you have in life, no matter where you come from, who you are, you can apply small steps every single day to break down a larger goal and just get better every single time. And um, so we're excited about it. We're fired up about it. So what's, what's crazy is, you know, you kind of talk about, about your book, but, you know, people have asked me about, you know, would you ever write a book? Would you ever tell a story and these things? And I'm always like, I don't really know what I tell a story about. And, and, and everybody says, well, you have a story. You have adversities and the things that you, you go through. For you, though, being a young athlete, what gave you the mindset of seeing beyond the playing field the way that you did? You know, for me, RC, it was uh, my parents. You know, coming from the Bahamas, uh, when we got to America, they really wanted to stress the importance of having black role models in our lives. So we had Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, uh, Ben Carson was somebody they put in front of me, a uh, pediatric neurosurgeon who separated two conjoined twins from the occipital lobe, and both of those twins lived. First hey, time that's ever done. Also, too, you got to remember, this is the pivot now. Like, you just said a word that, <laughs> that we don't really know, so we need you to explain <laughs> that. He said occipital lobe? <laughs> I don't know what he's... Where's my occipital lobe? That's back here, brother. That's back here. here. Y'all yeah, didn't catch or extrapolate at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you caught that one. <laughs> oh, man. But seeing, but seeing Dr. Carson's story, somebody looked like me, somebody who um, you know, came from a modest background like we came from, somebody whose parents focused on education, I said to myself, this is somebody who I can see myself as once I exhaust all my athletic ability. And so I think my parents really wanted me and my brothers to have a breadth of skill uh, so that once we finish our athletic journey, uh, that we can move into the next chapter of our life and still have value to the world. And so that's where neurosurgery, the seed was planted early on in life. And once I was done playing, I said, let's move on to this and hopefully we can save people and cure people and do good work in the world. And brother, 2% way though, like how do, you, how do you figure out what the 2% way is? Like you say you get 2% better every day. How do, you, how, how do you find that number that I have got 2% better today? You know, so I think the way I look at that number is it's a realistic, practical goal. You know, some people say, Shannon, hey man, I got 100% better today. It's almost like you're doubling your talent in one day, which is impractical, not realistic, and unfathomable in a way, right? But if you just get 2% practical growth, say, I just had this small victory today, meaning like, look, if I need to um, 
get better at my punctuality. Well, today I was able to put in my calendar, put in my phone, remind myself I need to, you know, wake up a little bit earlier. I need to have my buddy sort of check in on me, be my accountability friend so I can get to work on time. That's 2% of growth, 2% of increase. So it's small, it's realistic, it feels manageable because a lot of times we have these larger tasks that sometimes can feel overwhelming. But if you just break it down and say, you know, I got this small victory today. I got a little better today. And then a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you can look back and say, I'm so much better than I was before. And I'm closer to my journey. I'm closer to a better version of myself. And that's really what we try to get across in this book. You know what? I'm going to slow this thing down a little bit. It's <laughs> going fast, Because you talking fast, brother. You talking like a doctor. Let's, let's take it back to the island. <laughs> 242. Yes, sir. Bahamas. Yes, sir. Bahamian native, man. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that everybody back home, all the little brown kids, man, you're such an inspiration. And this is a Freddie Flowers moment. But most, most athletes, when, when I got to college, I wanted to major in the easiest thing, just so I can be eligible to play. Neuro, like, what, what do you have to major in? What were the steps for you to get to, you know, to, to want to work on brains? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know any other way to say it. I know neurosurgeon, but <laughs> like, what was this? Like, you went into school thinking that? Yeah, you know, I went in early thinking that uh, this was going to be my path. Um, but I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think that uh, coming where, where from, you know, the Bahamas, um, you know, it's a wonderful place, but there obviously are some limited resources. And my parents took me from the Bahamas when I was two years old and I grew up in America. And uh, they wanted us to have an opportunity to have an abundance of resources and ample opportunities to be great citizens, great leaders, and they focus on education. Like, I mean, it was not a question unequivocally what you needed to be, um, have a priority and or a premium on, and that was my school, being a student first before an athlete. So when I read about Ben Carson, when I learned about the brain in sixth grade, fifth, sixth grade, I said, this is such an interesting organ that can control like the way we speak, control our blood pressure, control our body temperature. Uh, one part of the brain controls you know, how we understand language and another part of the brain controls what we can see and how we can process things. I said, this is phenomenal. And so get into Florida State, I was recruited really highly out of high school. I told my coaches at FSU and all the coaches recruited me, I wanna be a neurosurgeon, help me get there. Activate and did mobilize. Did they look at you crazy? Coach Biden did not actually. He was like, look, and this is the thing, right? Florida State, we were coming off a time, this is, this is a very honest truth, we were coming off a time where we uh, needed our academic reputation to be improved. And so the idea of having a student athlete come there who they can sort of put as their poster boy, as the epitome of what a student athlete ought to be, they said, we are going to put our resources behind you to do what you need to do. And so if you want to be a brain surgeon, uh, we'll put you in pre-med classes, we'll have you shadow neurosurgeons locally in Tallahassee so you can go ahead and do big things. And so the support, the, the, the network was there, and uh, I appreciate it because it allowed my journey to sort of take off both on the football field and in the classroom. Do you think that was a knock against you? Because, like, your focus is not ball. Your focus is not playing ball. Like, it's harder to be a neurosurgeon yeah. than to get in the NFL. And it's not many, it's not many jobs you can say that, right? Like, yeah. there, there, are, there are less neurosurgeons than dudes that play in the NFL. Yeah. Do you think that some people were intimidated by that when you tell a college you went to Florida. I'm a Gator, so I got a bad mouth. <laughs> but you went to Florida State. It's, it's not a higher learning education place. Like you go to Florida State to play football. You go to Florida State to play football, but you yeah. go to Florida State now to be a neurosurgeon. Did you did did you ever feel as if your medical passion hurt you with recruiting? I think uh, I think it was definitely difficult for people to understand how uh, how important it was for me to be a true student and to even think about a Rhodes Scholarship or to think about neurosurgery or to think about anything beyond sports because as you mentioned, Florida State Power Five, huge school. This is what you expect. Um, you know, my cousin Samari went to FSU, so I'd always watch FSU when I was a young man, and uh, I knew I wanted to be there. But I had to find the people to say, "Look, we're gonna appreciate your journey and we're gonna help support your journey." Um, but what I say about my time at FSU. This is, I think, the hardest part. I don't think it was having people believe that I wanted to be a true student. I think it was fitting into the culture. Now, I'll be frank with you. Coming down from New Jersey, where I was a prep school kid, glasses, tucked in my shirt, to all these boys down in Florida, dreadlocks, gold teeth, fronts that don't come out, like these permanent fronts, you know what I'm saying? Listen to Plies and Boozy and TWD. And I'm like, man, there's more artists than these Florida rappers that y'all listen to. It was a lot, man. And so I'm trying to like fit into these boys. I'm, I mean, one of my teammates said, hey, bro, you got a jit? It's like, you got an old lady? I was like, I don't know what y'all talking about right now. I don't know these words. 
I said, I don't know country fried steak. I don't know none of y'all stuff y'all doing, but um, but eventually, man, I got in with the boys. I got cool with them, and they sort of accepted in me uh, and, and appreciated me as a brother because I put the work in on the field. You know, that was sort of my rite of passage. Like, if I worked hard and I showed my commitment to the sport uh, and to being a part of the team and not different from the team because I was smart, uh, they would, you know, allow me to rock with them and make me their brother, and they did. So that was good. You know, he asked about recruiting and people, you know, maybe holding it against you in recruiting because obviously when these guys are bringing you to the school, that's how they keep their jobs. That's how the school makes their money. When they have a five-star athlete that comes in, they want you to be All-American, which you were. Um, a lasting impression I have of you, there's a game being played, it's national TV, and you come out there late, right? You run on the field late because you wanted to take your test in order to be a Rhodes Scholar. When you have to make decisions like that, what's going through your mind? Because what you're saying is, at that point, we are now making you choose between priorities, right? There's a priority of you were a football player, you won scholarship to do that, but your ultimate goal was to be a neurosurgeon. And most days, those things didn't have to collide. And you chose to take the test and show up to the game late. What was your thought process in that? And it was tough. Uh, I, to be frank with you, my initial thought was, man, I can't take this Rhodes Scholarship interview. I, I can't leave my boys hanging. We were playing University of Maryland, okay. ACC opponent, big game. Uh, Samari's playing in Baltimore, so he's nearby. Like, we're, you know, I just feel like this is the moment. I need to be there. I'm an All-American player at the time, leader of the team. Uh, but then the Rhodes Committee said, if you don't take this interview now, you're not going to get this scholarship or you don't even have a chance. You can't postpone this. Uh, so you're right. Those two roads did collide. I prayed about it. I talked to my teammates and I really asked them, brothers, what should I do? Should I, you know, do this road scholarship interview? Is it OK if I miss half the game and come back later? And, and they were like, we support you. They got me in the middle of the circle on the football field, put their hands on me and prayed for me. A lot of those boys didn't even know how to spell Rhodes. No, no offense to my guys. They didn't know where they're, I was going. They didn't spell it R-O-A-D. Exactly. <laughs> you know, my brothers, but they were like, hey, we don't know what it is, but you know, we know it's big and you're going to do it. So, uh, right. so they showed me support and so much love. And so getting their sort of approval and getting their support was huge for me to take that test, to go and do that interview, and then win the scholarship, get on a private plane, fly to Maryland, get into the second quarter, get a ice water bath for my teammates. We beat up Maryland 37 to 3. Wonderful day, man. And, and Florida State, and student athletes in general, I think, won that day because here's somebody, like you said, putting these two roles that seemed like they were divergent, putting them together and having success on a major level. It was a big time. I got to ask, bro, because that you just said, it's funny, you said student athlete. 99.9% .9 of people, it's athlete student. Yeah. Because I, I, took, I took the baby. I, bro, I took, I took the baby classes. Bro, I took social dance twice. I took bowling twice. But I wasn't worried, what is it? It's public speaking. Like, I was taking the classes like, I'm going to the league. This is, I, I, this is my goal to go to the league. You were a legit student athlete, and you said your, your homeboys supported that? Because I ain't going to lie, bro. If, my, if I'm at Florida and my All-American safety is going to miss two quarters, to go talk to some people. <laughs> this is how I would take it as an 18 year old, 19 year old crowd. Yeah, no, you're right. So, my all American safety that I need back there that's calling out the calls yeah. is about to go talk to a panel when I'm out here grinding. You ain't have no pushback from that? Brother, honestly, no, man. Because they, they, my brothers called me on the team, doctor or president or senator role already. They already sort of appreciated the grind and, and they looked out for me. I'll give you an example, right? So, when I was a freshman at FSU, um, I didn't know how to play space, you know what I'm saying? I didn't know how to, you know, again, freestyle, rap like the boys. Is, is that Bahamian or is that just you, Man, was, you that, was a nerd? That's just me being a nerd, bro. Okay. That's me being a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> ain't, nothing, ain't nothing to do with where he was raised, I, though. Yeah. It's, some, it's, it's some space going on yeah, in Bahamas. Yeah, that's space, right? man. That's space, dominoes, everything. Pluck, you know, everything. Rummy, but no, nah, I was like, I was out of it, man. So, uh, so I didn't know I'd do, I'd do any of that stuff. But I told my brother, I said, look, man, I'm going to be a pre-med student. I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to be a Rose Scout. I was telling my teammates this. And I was, like, strong about that. Like, I didn't, I didn't waver on where I wanted to be. And, uh, and so they, they bought in. They said, brother, this dude keeps talking about this. He doesn't accept our invitations to go out to the club or go to Atlanta on a road trip or go here and go there. He's always in his room studying. He's doing what he can. Let's protect. I did say one night, I said, man, I want to, I want to kick it with y'all boys. Like, let me, let me just go hang with y'all. And, uh, and they were like... Um, all right, Roll, let me see what you're talking about. So I went down to the first 
uh, first sort of floor in our apartment complex. And the boys are doing some stuff down there. I won't repeat, but it was, it was different. And so, and so they saw me walk in and they saw my face and they were like, they realized, look, if we are the reason why this brother doesn't achieve his goal of being a Rhodes Scholar or a neurosurgeon, we're gonna feel bad. So they kicked me out of there like, Rogue, leave, man, leave. You don't wanna be around here, all this stuff. And I was like, oh man, my brothers don't like me. But then looking back on it, I said, they were protecting me. They mm -hmm. were trying to make sure that I had my head on straight because if I succeeded, then they felt like they succeeded. So it was like a very, very congenial, team-like approach to helping me and others like me have that success. And the boys knew whether I got to the league or not, cool. But if I was able to be a Rhodes Scholar, a neurosurgeon, change lives one day and, and make an impact. Uh, and I shared the same locker room and I shared, shared the same facilities and same energy with them, then it felt like they won too. So there's one president in the history of this country that's been a Rhodes Scholar. Do you know who it is? Bill Clinton. One, another politician, black guy like yourself. He's also a, a Rhodes Scholar. Cory Booker? I'm asking the smart guy the wrong question. <laughs> Y'all don't know I, what you're doing. I'm going to give him a test. Yeah, <laughs> got to give this motherfucker <laughs> a test. Of course. <laughs> yeah, like hey. uh, But the, what, the point I'm trying to make is, and this is more so for the viewers, that's just elite company. You know, that's prestigious company. Yeah. And, you know, we, we're talking about guys that run nations. Mm -hmm. You know, only one guy who, obviously, I guess the latter part of his, his uh, tenure as president you know, I don't know if he was uh, considered president for the right reasons, he right? He did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> I did man. not have <laughs> got a little head, man. You leave that man alone. I know, but, I mean, but as smart as, you know, what it takes to become a Rhodes Scholar, yeah. it, I think, for me, it's simply amazing. Um, but I want to get into, you know, we, we went through uh, probably the toughest times in our entire lifetimes, mm. you know, most recently the past two years with the pandemic. But you know, following you on Instagram, all your social media, uh, not only that you're just a neurosurgeon, you're more than that, you're on the front lines, you know, battling, trying to save lives, putting yourself in harm's way. What was that experience like from, you know, the front lines? Yeah, that was a, a very trying time, Fred. I mean, you know, as a brain surgeon, someone who does brain and spine surgery, someone who deals with the central nervous system, vastly different than a respiratory illness like COVID. But our whole hospital shut down where any elective or emergency surgeries were, were done. And uh, as, as our hospital, Mass General, we are the main referral hub in New, New England area. You spent some time in New England. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a real major hospital for Harvard. And um, so we had all these COVID patients coming into our doors. Uh, and our chairman said, look, we need to shift gears, Dr. Roll. We need to shift gears. We need you to stop doing elective surgeries, all of us, and start um, volunteering in the emergency department and help triage some of these patients who are coming in. So basically I had to learn about this respiratory illness, learn about uh, the you know, cytokine response that some of these individuals may have, learn about intubations, learn about all these different things that I typically don't do on a day-to-day -day basis. Being an athlete helped me be flexible. Something else that I really appreciated during that COVID pandemic was being able to be an advocate for us, uh, black individuals who may have a distress in the healthcare system already, and then you're seeing the disproportionate number of people who are getting COVID who look like us, poor, brown, black, and underserved and marginalized communities, especially in Boston. You know, they were getting affected the most because they were coming in with all these preconditions and chronic conditions that they weren't being managed properly. And so we're seeing a lot of that too. And so being an advocate, being on the front lines, helping people, it just was all a part of the, the, the role. And I appreciated uh, having that opportunity. Did you see any difference in the way that black and brown people were treated or you were just saying and having the opportunity to be on the front lines and also understanding how many people looked like you that were coming through the door with, with some of those uh, preconditions and some of those things that were already existing, some of those chronic uh, situations that they were dealing with, did you feel they were treated differently or you just wanted to make sure they were taken care of? So I don't think they were treated differently uh, when they got to us, but I think what the pandemic showed, it further illuminated the gap that exists between black and brown or poor individuals and major hospitals. See, mm -hmm. our hospital typically, it's a, it's a very, very high-end hospital where we get clientele from all over the world. If you have some of the most complex pathologies, the worst diseases, you come to Mass General Hospital and you get treated. But you have people who are black who are right around the corner 
who won't come to our hospital because they're not plugged in with a primary care physician. They don't know they have hypertension. They don't know they have diabetes. They don't know they have you know, early stage of prostate cancer or things like that because they're not getting checked or they're not plugged into the system. They sometimes get lost in that. And so when you have these people who aren't managed or undermanaged with their chronic disease, COVID was hitting those people a lot harder than anyone else. And so typically I'm seeing these patients from Martha's Vineyard and from Bahrain and from UAE. And now I'm seeing, you know, Jim and John right from Mattapan, right from Dorchester, right from Roxbury, Roxbury where New Edition and Bobby Brown and those boys are from. Seeing all these people I typically don't see, it was alarming to me. So that's why I enjoy being on TV, speaking out, writing about it and saying, look, now we know there's a gap. How can we reach and access these people who are sort of marginalized and not getting the healthcare that they should. The pandemic has showed us that we need to do better. Now let's do better. Did, did the check go down? Because yeah. as a neurosurgeon to a COVID doctor, yeah. like, you know what I'm saying? Did the, did the, did the check change because- nah, it didn't change, brother. Okay, it I just want to make sure brother. because it seems, it seems like you, you have done, you gonna get him? Oh, man. Listen, you see my big brother, watch out for me. I appreciate that. You see that. my big brother, watch out for me. I appreciate me. He, that. He didn't want to get me bit by no damn. I don't know, if he, I don't know, I don't know what that was. I don't know if beetles can bite, but that motherfucker was a grown man. Were you gung-ho in going from neurosurgery that you worked your whole life and you have, let's be honest, you have more degrees than the dudes that are up there and now you're sitting there, what, giving people IVs and putting on masks? Like, what, what was the transition from you're at your goal, you're at your top, and I don't know if it came down, but it seems like you were overqualified to be a COVID doctor. You know, I, I really had to humble myself for sure and realize that uh, this was not my expertise. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I like operating on brain tumors. I like clipping aneurysms. I like fixing deformed spines, but, you know, getting someone a infectious disease consult and trying to intubate them because they have COVID, that's not something I initially signed up for. But I realized I had to do, I had to do the job. We needed bodies. You know, we had physicians and nurses who were calling out because they were getting sick from COVID. And so we were really strapped for personnel uh, to do the work. And so just had to put aside my own personal career or personal interests and really just look at the patients who were coming, who are vulnerable and needed our support uh, to go ahead and, and, and make that shift and make it happen. Do you prepare for surgery like you prepare for it? <laughs> you say you enjoy yeah. uh, brain, getting ready for brain tumors. Yeah. Clipping uh, aneurysms. Aneurysm, flipping aneurysms. Clipping aneurysms. Clipping aneurysms. You don't flip an aneurysm, Freddie? I don't know, man. <laughs> and uh, spines. Yeah. How, what's your mindset like going into it? Because the margin for error is, is very thin, right? It is very small. It's Absolutely. Very small. Yeah. And I mean, and you have to look at these patients on the operating table as maybe even your family member or somebody who needs you right now. They're very vulnerable. They're coming to you for a reason. And so, yeah, I, I do apply what I learned in football. Uh, to preparation for surgeries, looking at CT scans, MRIs, looking at the right approach to the brain or right approach to the spine, where if you looked at the post-operative image, you say, I don't even know that Dr. Roll, his team was in there. I, I couldn't even tell. So you're quarterbacking, you, your team, you're quarterbacking. We have to, yeah. And, and the communication in the operating theater is just like that. You're talking, you're, you're speaking to nurses, circulating nurses, scrub techs, um, device medical manufacturer reps who are in there, anesthesiologists, your boss, my attending physicians who are in there. You're speaking to everybody and getting them on the same page. Matter of fact, before the case even starts, we have something called a huddle where we talk about <laughs> what we're gonna do. Right. How long is this case gonna take? What's the estimated blood loss? Will we expect the outcome to be? Where are the patient's going after the case, ICU or to the floor? All that stuff is communicated. So I tell my mentees all the time, I say, look, if you don't know what you wanna do, Think about medicine, man, because the seamless transition from being a football player, being an athlete, being ha having all these traits, discipline, focus, being coachable, communicating, teamwork, it all works in medicine, especially as a surgeon. And, and bro, to, to that point, that surgery thing, Freddie, just, it blows my mind. Freddie over yeah. there laughing now, because it, it's crazy. I don't like to see myself bleeding, <laughs> but now, you guys get bro, to see all types of blood. That, yeah. I Freddie, can't fathom that. I wanted to ask him, because y'all have y'all huddle, and then you go to the patient, and you say, hey, uh, Sheshafield Johnson, <laughs> I'm about to cut your goddamn head open. <laughs> I'm gonna play in your brain, then I'm gonna put your skull back on. Like, yeah. like the, the pre-surgery the pre conversation, what yeah. is that like? Man, you, you have to sort of be on the same level as these patients, like sit one-to-one, -one, just like I'm sitting with you right now. So on the same level, 
and talk in terms and in language that they understand. Don't speak above them. Don't speak in too much scientific sort of jargon. You really have to be able to communicate and present it in a way, look, look, this is what you need. This is the best option we have for you. We have the skill and the, and the reputation and experience to do this well. We're gonna have all of the operating theater and the equipments optimized to do this the best we can. And we're gonna make sure we're doing the best we can for you. And so if you're able to lay it out like that, I think you're able to you know, talk to patients in a way to have them believe in you, believe in your team, uh, to do good work. Oh, so it's game. Because I know you married. I know you got beautiful kids. What, you got two set of twins? Two set of twins. Two percent weight. I was going to get to that. I was going to say really two percent weight. really do the two percent weight now. Oh, so, so yeah. So I, you have charisma, man. Yeah, I like you. Like, hell, you, you a got, surgeon. You yeah, we sitting him, too close together right now. <laughs> I might shoot at you. <laughs> but no, it, but it really, like, you have to make your patients, un, like, I don't want to say respect, but just, just, like you and understand that you're there for them. The best, the best you can do for them is what you're going to do. And no question. And you have to assure them that you are going to optimize everything in that operating room so that they're getting the best care possible. And that if they go somewhere else, they may get equal care, but they're not going to get better care. Mm. And you're going to say your nurses are going to be involved. You're going to talk about the staff is going to be involved, materials management. Everyone is locked in to make sure that your patient experience is the best possible. And that's not a lie. I mean, we have track record of outcomes at our hospital that we do that. And that's why people come to Harvard over and over again to get cared for by us because, you know, we, we do put that forward and we are serious and, and um, committed to, to that experience. You know, I had, I had a time, you know, this was not an elective case where I actually spoke to a patient like this. But just talk about like just my experience in neurosurgery. There was a, a young lady, and I remember this story, you know, this is one of the wins that we had. And this is what makes me feel good about doing what I'm doing. Uh, and God's given me the ability to do it. Uh, she was in her early teens and she was dating a guy in his 30s or 40s. Um, he got upset at her, ended up shooting her in the head with a gun, close range, not point blank, but pretty close. The bullet was lodged in her occipital lobe, right? Mm -hmm. So back here. Right there in the occipital. Right in the occipital lobe. Yeah, right yeah, visual cortex, so affecting her, her vision. But she was shot, and the bullet stayed in her occipital lobe. She was left to die at a local community hospital. The system worked so well that they got her to our hospital. Me and my attending took her in for an emergency surgery. Didn't go and get the bullet because the bullet was lodged next to a very important draining vessel that if we moved the bullet, she could have had torrential bleeding in her brain and she would have died on the table. But we got away the necrotic tissue, we took away some of the bone fragments, we copiously washed it out, make sure there's no infection, nothing like that. Sent her to the ICU, a month later she walks out of the hospital, she's in school now, she has a daughter, she's raising her daughter, she's working, she's got a great job, she's doing a wonderful job, her mother loves it. Those are the kind of wins that when you're doing neurosurgery, you feel like, you were able to bring somebody back from the brink of death, and now they're able to live a meaningful life. And so that's exciting. It's, it's a phenomenal thing, man. I, I really enjoy it. I, you can probably tell how I'm talking about how passionate yeah. I am and how much I love it. It's, it was the perfect transition from football to now this field in my life uh, because it's given me that same satisfaction every single day. You're smarter than all of us. We all agree with that. Hey, um, hey, and, hey, hey, and speak for yourself. Especially you. <laughs> and I have either agreed with everything you said or not understood it to the point where there was no disagreement to be had. Until this, you said, I tell my mentees that they should really think about medicine because of the seamless transition between sports and medicine, right? So let's talk about your huddle, right? Let's say we in the huddle, right? And we, you know, we go through and we say, so, all right, Sam, me, 33, ready, break, right? Now, the worst that could happen, if we totally blow it, is they score a touchdown. Right. Good with that. Right? You go in your huddle, okay, she got shot in the head and it's right next to a vessel, so if we remove it, she could die. All right, ready, break. Somebody could lose their life. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Like that's a, to, to me, that's not seamless, right? Because to me, there is no going to the sideline and being okay after someone losing their life. What are some of the scarier things or some of the worst cases you guys have had to deal with? Man. And you remember the losses. You really do. They hit you. I, I cried about it. I actually had to call my pastor to talk me through it. Uh, it was a young girl, another child, uh, who ended up getting hit um, by a driver who was sleep deprived. Matter of fact, it was a, a, a hospital worker that was working a 24-hour shift, 
fell asleep at the wheel, hit this young girl. She might have been six, seven months old. And they brought her in 2 a.m. Dr. Roll, you know, you got to come in. You got to do something. So I came in, tried to do the best I could, but her bleeding, her, her swelling of her brain was too great uh, that she didn't make it. And um, you often feel sometimes as MD, you're like the mighty doctor. You can do it all. You can bring everybody back. Um, but at that point, I realized my talent and my skill is limited. I cannot do it all. I'm just a man, I'm just a human. And if I give everything I can to that experience and to that patient, then I've done all I could. The rest needs to be divine intervention. God's gotta step in and say, maybe I can do something about this. But that was hard because you feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm here, I'm at Harvard, I'm, I'm here for a reason, I can do this, I can bring them back. But going and telling the family that you know, their child is now not with us anymore, it was devastating, it crushed me, I'll never forget about it. Still gets me emotional to this day. And um, that is a moment where you really need to lean on the people who you love. You know, my wife, my family, my brothers, McKinley, who's here with me, um, my co-residents, colleagues, just try to speak life into me, speak life into us as we go through these difficult times because no offense to dermatology or something like that, you know, you might be removing a skin tag. That's not life or death like brain surgery, right? Yeah. There's people who can either be here or not be here. And so uh, that was very difficult. That was the most challenging moment for me, for sure. Does that does that ever get easier as as you become more experienced and you have more opportunities to operate? Do you think as as you go on, you'll be able to deal with the losses better? And is is that is that even something you're trying to do? Like, how do you move forward and keep that same compassion? Right, keep like, that like same drive cry, to when save. When you cried when you lost in high school. Yeah. When people cry when they yeah. lost in high school, you cry when you lost in college. But when you get to the league, you can't cry every time you yeah. lose. Right. Yeah. yeah, no, you can't be, uh, I would say you can't be disconnected and you cannot be immune to the feelings of wanting to help this person. I mean, that's why you go into it. You go into medicine to do no harm and to try to help these individuals who have no other option. They can't go anywhere else, but they're there with you now. And like the Bible says, you're there for such a time as this. You have to do the work. And sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to. Sometimes your outcomes aren't as good. And sometimes things are just don't move in the direction that you want them to. You're going to have more wins than losses. And you absolutely should aim for that, right? You should aim for the better outcomes or else you wouldn't be having a job very long. But I think for me, what's helped me sort of get through that is I know my limitations. I know my human limitations. And I also know that the next patient that I need to see or the next patient I need to operate on they're not going to be expecting me to start still thinking about the patient that we just lost or had a bad outcome. They want me to give my best to them right now who's in front of me. And so I try to keep that in mind. Uh, and then also have those people around me who can, you know, cheer me up or speak life or things that I can do to get away from the hospital, which is working out, listening to music, listening to some soca, calypso music, a little reggae, you know, get into it. And uh, that's, No plies? It look, no plies, man. I mean, you know, I am the club. I know that song very well. You know, had to do a stroll to that song, but nah, man, I'm I'm into my reggae. But yeah, so that's what we that's what we kind of get to. Is he the smartest motherfucker ever to play in the NFL? <laughs> to me, absolutely. Yeah, I can't think about like, but to have be a doctor. But then you talk about spirituality. You talk about like you yeah. talk to God and all. Mm. To be a to be a doctor, do you think like is there doctors that you work with that aren't spiritual like that? Like. Oh, yeah. That aren't like how, how like when, when you're praying like for a patient and mm. there's an atheist doctor, mm. like how do you deal with that where you're you're going to a higher power, mm. but some people don't think there's a higher power. You're absolutely right. No question. There's definitely people who separate their um, their faith and their their spirituality from from the science. And to me, I, you know, that's just never been the way I wanted to operate. And so I stay in my lane. You know, I stay connected with what I'm doing uh, to allow myself to be the best version of myself in that particular moment. Uh, I know that what happens in that brain, what happens in the spine, what happens in the body is a miracle half the time. There's some things we can't even explain. I mean, the brain is beautiful and I think and we think we know so much about it, but there's a lot that we don't know. And so that part of the unknown, that uncertainty, you know, you just have to marvel at how people can function when they've had a stroke or some major infection or some major traumatic brain injury and they're still able to get up and have a meaningful life and have their senses and faculty. You know, like, how can they do this? How, how are they able to do this? It has to be someone higher than us. It has to be the Lord sort of putting his work and putting his hand onto this patient and into this situation. So I don't, I don't really sort of allow anyone else's um, you know, faith or lack of faith to uh, sort of um, move me away from where I am and how I do, be how I do best. Um, I know it's something that centered me when I played football and it's something that centers me now when I operate and uh, I like to keep it with me. Channing asked a Freddie T type question. I'm gonna pivot and ask a uh, Channing type question. 
we all watch Grey's Anatomy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've watched Grey's Anatomy, and uh, I know you don't snitch because you just mentioned, especially being the father of a new set of twins. Yeah, congratulations, yeah. second Congrats, set, right? Man. Yeah, second set. Boy and girl, boy and girl. You yeah. done? To me, no, but to her, <laughs> you know. Yeah. We're gonna have twins, to go and get though. you a uh, urologist, man. <laughs> go ahead and get you right. Two sets of twins. Two sets of he twins. He be making twins because he be lingering in there. That's amazing. He he you has the secret. You gotta keep pumping. He knows something that we don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh at the hospital, how much how much of it is like Grey's Anatomy? Is everyone sleeping with everybody? Oh man. <laughs> Oh, Fred T. That's where we went, huh? <laughs> oh, man. We had to pivot. He yeah. asked my type question. <laughs> so I had to ask his type question. Oh, man. You know, I, I, I'd say... You can you can zip it up if you want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Fred, that's not what the pivot is. You know, we got to be real with it. So this is what I say. This is what I say, bro. <laughs> In my experience, you're way too busy to have the opportunities to go find those rooms and do those different things in the hospital, right? I mean, and there's security everywhere. You know, they, they're watching everything you're doing. Right. And they tell you, they're like, oh, Dr. Roy, you had a nice shirt on the other day. I'm like, how you know that? Like, oh, you, you're, they're looking at you. So right. I'm not sure how much is happening, brother. So you guys are definitely practicing social distancing. Oh, for sure. For now, sure. you got to go in that room with the medicine. That's where they go in Grey's Anatomy. When you go in the little room with the medicine, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's where there ain't no cameras with the no medicine. No cameras there. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you you right. already know. You already know. So, you know, we talked a, a lot about, you know, how we, how we got here, how, you know, how we got to you know, this point of writing the 2% way. What's life for you now? You you know, you have the two sets of twins. Uh, I think you just recently came, you know, fr from the Bahamas. It seems like it would be so busy. I remember being so proud of you when you would come on ESPN um, in 2020 and, and give us opportunities to know what was going on in the hospitals, what people were going through in our country. How do you find time to enjoy life, to enjoy being a husband to enjoy being a father and still be so excellent at a job that truly is life and death every single day? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think getting back to the Bahamas is huge for me, uh, seeing my family, uh, being able to recalibrate and un understand uh, what's important. Um, you know, being around people who I love daily, my brothers, my cousins, my wife, you know, everybody, my friends, my fraternity brothers, football brothers, everybody who's, um, who's been a part of my journey laughing with them, just doing some things. What frat? I'm sorry. Cap Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Oh, okay. yeah. Come yeah. On. You ain't know? Come on, brother. You ain't know? Y'all gonna do the, the shimmy? Yeah, you know, shimmy hey, shimmy? man. You know, we we, we I want to see y'all shimmy. You are too big to be nah. a Kappa. Nah, man. I was <laughs> in there. Look at your thighs. I was a tail. How you gonna twirl a damn cane <laughs> and all that sexy shit with them thighs? <laughs> hey, we made it happen, baby. <laughs> hey. The knees, man, the knees still work. All shapes and sizes, man. And as long as your shoulders stay loose, you're good. You know what I mean? Y'all like that shimmy, you know? Yeah, yeah. You gotta shimmy, Chad. Yeah. Me and you, baby. Hey, I just keep, I just keep bringing better people around you guys. You know we'll, what I'm saying? We'll appreciate it. How can we get down to be honorary uh, captains? Honorary captains, man. Yeah. This, you know, it's coming around, man. You know, we don't, we don't really. Y'all can't sign us up. We don't really do honoraries like that. Yeah, um, but we'll hey, make sign up sheet. I'm trying to take the back door. I can't do back door, brother. I can't do that. Nah, I can't do back door. Ain't no skating. Right. Yeah, no skating. I don't whoop too much ass to be a capper. Y'all don't fight nobody. But you light skin, so that you know that, 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 that's, that's, that's part of a prerequisite. Part Ooh, of it. Listen, part light of skin it. get you in. Right, I'm light skin, skin brothers. We're not. But you people know. call me light skin wonder. Okay. Dude, what kind of wonder? I talked to Barack earlier, Drake. I got to call out all our all our winners right now. We're gonna call out all the winners, but but for real, man. Like, what are you doing, man? Like. How do you find, like, how do you find the space uh, to live life? Yeah. You know, when it seems, I mean, that's a that's a full plate you have. It is, it is. Um, you know, but I just try to go slow with everything. I try to make sure I keep things in perspective. Um, getting back home to the Bahamas, working in the Caribbean, I have this foundation, the Caribbean Neurosurgery Foundation of um, trying to upscale neurosurgical care for those who need it the most. I had an auntie in 2010 who passed away in Exuma, Bahamas. You do fishing in Exuma, you know it. Um, she was walking in the street, hit by a car, had a traumatic brain injury, ended up not seeing a specialist, no MRI, no CT scan, no neurosurgeon was on the island to see her. She ended up dying seven hours after not seeing anyone. And the golden hour of, of traumatic brain injury and urgent emergent care is four hours. You need to be seen within four hours. And so I said to myself, when I became a neurosurgeon and had the aptitude to do so, I would try to create a foundation that filled that gap, upscale care and do the most I can. So from doing that work and trying to you know, 
inject positivity into the world, to try to bridge this gap of healthcare disparities with our, with our people, uh, to trying to be a father and being a husband and now doing neurosurgery and writing a book and inspire people to lift themselves up and do more with themselves than they thought they could, believe in themselves more. Just how Ben Carson's story inspired me and opened my eyes to neurosurgery. Maybe my story can do that for someone. It all feels like it's a part of the rhythm. I feel like I'm on beat. I feel like it's on pace. I don't feel overwhelmed. I don't feel rushed. Uh, and I, and I, it's a blessing to, to sort of have that control and have that level of evenness uh, with it all. You mentioned 2010, which is the year your aunt took home to her injuries. Mm -hmm. That was the same year you was drafted. That's correct. Did that, your mindset then, uh, you wanted to go, you got drafted, you don't want to prove everybody that you're worthy, you're playing in the NFL, you know, regardless of, you know, uh, the Rhodes Scholar and, and everything else you had done academically. With that injury and your aunt, you know, losing her life, did that, what was your mindset like? Did it take you to a certain place where you couldn't focus on football, where you wanted to make sure you got to do what your 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 main passion was, so you can get there and, and make sure you're able to save lives? Yeah, that's a great question, Fred. I mean, I think at the time I was I was disappointed and I was let down because she was the the matriarch of our our Bahamian family, um, but I knew that I was trying to shake a stigma that I was too smart for the NFL or mm -hmm. that I wasn't committed to football. I remember coming to the Senior Bowl and I'm in this room. I balled out in the Senior Bowl, by the way, Fred. I mean, I came back from Oxford. I was a year and a half off, went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, came back, mm -hmm. not played, was fourth on a depth chart in the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama. And then um, by the time Saturday came in the game, I was starting, right? That's Taylor Mays, all the best players in the country. Right. Now I'm out here balling with them. But I remember in that week, you know when teams have to talk to you and see how you're right. doing. The Tampa Bay Bucks bring me into their room, and it's Raheem Morris, who's the head coach at the time, and a mm -hmm. bunch of other guys. They're like, "Hey, you know, uh, Roll, do you feel like you quit on your team? Do you feel like you abandoned your team? You're the best player on your Florida State football team. Do you feel like you let you guys down and, and let them go by going to Oxford and not sticking around for your senior year? Mm -hmm. Do you love football? Are you gonna leave if we draft? I mean." Peppering me this question is like, like you tell me to be a student athlete. Right. Now I do it at one of the highest levels, and now it's coming back as a black mark against me. I remember walking out of that meeting, and then Raheem Morris telling me one-on-one, -on -one, hey, you inspired my son. You're a hero for my son. I appreciate you. Yeah. So he looked out for me, but the others didn't. And so in that respect, I said I knew this stigma was going to be on me everywhere I went. The NFL was going to say this kid is just like, he's got too many other things he can, can do that we're not sure if we want to invest in him. So at that point, in 2010, when that happened to my aunt, I was trying to put everything into football to make them believe that if they want to talk to me about Bill Clinton or Rhodes Scholarships or anything, I'm going to pivot the conversation to speaking about cover two, covering mm -hmm. the hash, disguising right. the blitz packages, and trying to be all in. So that was kind of how, where I was at that point in my life. So the team, they had to ask the question, and it was one of the things that I thought about when I knew, I knew you were coming on. Do you think that having those two passions, because I don't want to speak for RC or Freddie, I knew football was my out. You know, I knew football was going was going to get me where I am today, but you had two passions. Do you think that those two passions you had to divide your attention between them? Could you have been a better neurosurgeon if you didn't play football or be a better football player if you weren't pre-med? Wow. Boy, that's a good question, man. Uh, it's the pivot, baby. Yeah, that's 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 a tough one. I don't know if I ever had to really think about that. I, I cuz they've always been two two parts of my life that I've embraced and walked with in my own material body. Like I feel like this has just been a routine for me to balance academics and athletics. And, and every time we, we take a step forward, high school, then college, then professionals, I feel like I can continue to do it and continue to compete because every level that I played football, I was either the top or near the top. I was a number one rated player coming out of high school. And that's with Matt Stafford, Tim Tebow, Percy Harvin, Shady McCoy, There's some really good ballers in that, in that class. And then I get to the league and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, he doesn't care about football. He's not committed to it. He doesn't want it. We should invest money into him because he can leave and do something else. And I remember I was briefly teammates with RC mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh, and I told him, hey, man, they let me go. You know, they cut me, brother. I'm gone. I text him, I text Troy, Ike Taylor, and all of them said the same thing. Bro, you did not embarrass yourself. You yep. came out here and played well. You did a great job. And then I remember Larry Foote one time as well, never talked to me. Larry never talked to me, man. I mean, he always had the headphones on. He just doing his own thing. Footy don't really talk he to me. He don't talk to people. nobody. <laughs> so after one game, he, he takes off his headphones, he said, roll. And I'm like, oh, Larry Foote talking to me. What's up, man? What's up? He's like, good job today, bro. Put his headphones back on. I said, you know what? If nothing else happens, I feel that if I got the respect from the guys I play with, 
that I knew I could play. I knew I had, I knew I had the talent to do it. But for some odd reason, it didn't work out. And this is what I will say to that too. Why it didn't work out, I'm not exactly sure. But what I do know is that maybe God was protecting me from a bad traumatic brain injury mm. or breaking up my finger so I can't do surgery and maybe save lives down the road. So I, I tried to flip it and think of it in that way to keep that perspective fresh and, and, and you know, sort of on the up and up. Even being able to do that, being able to, to flip it and give yourself um, an understanding of the way that God's grace and mercy works do you ever have any regrets, Oof. right? Do, do, do you ever, do you ever say, cause when, when Channing asked you that question, I thought that was the most simple question to be asked on the show. And not saying that you are simple in any way, my brother, just saying like, I thought that that would be a thought every day. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, 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 would, I would sit around every day if I didn't make it. And maybe because I thought about football, you know, like I wanted it, like kind of like Channing did, you know, I would have been like, man, maybe if I wasn't, you know, if I didn't take the year away or if, I, or if I didn't do this, football works out differently. And I think looking at it now and where you are, I can't see your life going any other way or you being in any other position than you are now. But do you ever sit back and go, you know what? If I'd have did that differently, maybe things work out different in this area. Yeah, there's times that I do think about that. I'm not gonna lie, I'm, I'm human, just like anybody else. I think, man, what if I had not gone to Oxford first because I graduated at Florida State undergrad in two and a half years. Got my degree very quickly. And so I knew I was leaving with a degree. I was, I was gonna be okay and I was gonna leave for the draft. So I put my name into that scouting service that they have for undergraduate students in college. And they tell me, hey, you're gonna be like a first or second round pick. I call up Samari in Baltimore. I said, what are you, what are you guys saying up there? He said, you run fast, you'd be a late first, maybe early second guy. Call up Antrell, same thing. You'll be an early second guy probably. So that's, I know if I, walk into the draft in 2009 and don't take that year and a half off to go to Oxford and eat bangers and mash and fish and chips and, you know, be over there punting in the Thames River and being Harry Potter wearing capes and all that stuff. <laughs> I, I, I knew that, you know, my, my, my role in the NFL or my opportunity to stay longer would have, would have been there. Um, and so, yeah, there is that regret at times. But then I get recentered when I hear people come up to me and say, you know what, Dr. Roll, I've used your story for my son or my daughter to realize that they can do more with their life. They can be exceptional in two, two areas and not feel conflicted or not feel like they had to compromise for anybody. And that's the same thing that Dr. Carson did for me. That's the same thing that the heroes in my life, Paul Robeson, um, Nelson Mandela, Malcolm X did for me. And that's the same reason why we wrote this book, The 2% Way, to allow people to see that story and see the personal struggles that we've had and allow them to sort of grow from it, see themselves in it and be better because of it. Yo, big black ass was playing Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> man, look. <laughs> we had to wear these subfusk men and, and capes, and we had to dress up like this for food. Just, just to go and eat in the dining hall, you had to dress up like a cape, like you were really in Harry Potter Hogwarts, man. Bro, that's serious. <laughs> really? Yeah. And these, are, and these are the smartest humans in the world. Smartest humans in the world. And the and conversations you have to have around that table are like, what's happening in the UN? What's going on with the G8 summit? What do, we, what do you think about NATO? What do you think about this and that? And you're like, man, what, what are these conversations that we're having? Um, but they're, they're legit. And, and you, rub, you running with a broom under your leg. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wish. I wish <laughs> I was able to do that. I, I wanted to ask you, man, because you uh, the CTE thing, which is a big topic now, you said you fell in love with the brain early on. Yeah. You love the brain. Yeah. And so you understand the brain but you're going out there and running into, bro, we all love to watch you play. We're older than you. I came, I'm the youngest, I came out in 05, so we all watched you play. So you understand what the brain does and you still went out there and bashed your head into grown ass men yeah. year after year after year. Was yeah. that a fight mentally with you knowing that this could mess up the old peanut? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I, I honestly, I tried to remove it from my mind when I played football. I tried not to think about the damage that this gelatinous organ that can move around in our hard skull, uh, the effects that, you know, putting my face in the fan, like RC always would say. Put your uh, face in the fan, put your face man. in the fan. That was your saying? Yeah. You say it all the time, oh. all the time. You can stick <laughs> your face in the fan, it, roll, I say, yeah, let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, I try to suspend those thoughts because I knew, just like y'all know, I mean, a step too slow, a step too thinking about something then, you know, Fred's gone, right? I mean, strike with the band, it's over. Uh, so you, I, I did not, um, I would say, hamstring myself by having those thoughts. Now, as a scientist now, and as a physician now, 
I wish that I would have thought more about it then, and I talk about it now, uh, thinking about CTE, thinking about, uh, and we know CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy, these protein deposits that are in the brain that can lead to aggressive behavior, suicidal ideations, and other things like that. I wish I would have done it more then, but I feel like my recompense for not doing it then is trying to be an advocate now, trying to work with the NFL and other scholars and other researchers on how we can make the game safer and preserve all of y'all wonderful men who come from the sport uh, because there's a lot life to live. And like I just mentioned, you guys have, and as football players have, just the right DNA, the design to be leaders in this world. But if it's cut short based on us not focusing on our brain health like we do for ACL tears or shoulder sprains or things like that, then we're not doing a service to all of y'all. So for me, this is twofold. One, do you feel a greater responsibility being that you've played the sport and you've been in the brotherhood to solve this CTE thing? That's one. And two is, I want what's your favorite chapter in the book? But answer it in the vocabulary that none of us can understand. <laughs> I'll, understand I'll understand it, Freddie. Please. Cross my leg. <laughs> Uh, so I'd say, um, yeah, I do, I do feel a responsibility to help in this fight with chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Right now, you can't tell if someone has it if they're living, right? You only can tell by autopsy. Can't even tell it by diagnostic imaging. You can't get an MRI or CT scan. Even with the aggression and the None of the that. There, there, there is some MRI scans that can talk about connectivity if the hemispheres are communicating, the right and left hemispheres are communicating. And some of those signals may be depreciated in people who have moderate or severe TBI, but there's nothing like getting a scan and knowing you got a tumor or a bleed or something like that. It doesn't show up like that. Right. So you really have to go off of symptoms. You really have to go off conditions and clinical sort of what you see in exam. And so, yeah, I do feel like there's a role for me to play as someone who played the sport knows the aggression it takes, knows those stupid Oklahoma drills we did as young yeah. kids and how they don't make sense, you mm -hmm. know, to yep. play the game well, uh, knows that we can have, you know, airbags in the helmet or sort of cushions that are like airbags that are that can um, help protect our brain, that we can have sensors in the mouthpiece and the, and the helmet to understand these high velocity impacts, adding technology, changing rules, making sure players report if they have concussions and not feel like they have to be too macho and not say if they have something right. because they feel mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm not a part of the team. I'm not, I'm not strong. I don't want to be soft, right? So mm -hmm. all of that, that's important. As far as a favorite chapter in the book, man, you know, for me, I think the real pivotal moment in my life. Um, I like that. Yeah, you like that? Try to bring it in there. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be a chapter where I speak very, very, um, you know, profoundly about getting in a fight as a young person. Um, when I was 10 years old, this young man called me the N-word uh, and called my mother the B-word. And those are two strikes, right? You had three strikes. You can either call me a racial epithet, talk about my mummy, or talk about my, my country. And he did two out of three. So I had to put my paws on him and let him know what time it was. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, I know y'all had Errol Spence on here before. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I was ready. I was ready. But anyway, so I ran the bus, grabbed him, beat him up and he had to go to the hospital for his, uh, his injuries. Um, my brother and I were walking home from that fight, and we just were like, okay, it's over, you know, it's done. We said our piece, we did our piece, you know, and now he won't say that anymore. But his parents actually followed us home, knocked on our door, and told my daddy, you know, cussed him out, and my daddy not knowing what happened, he's not wanting people to attack his son, so he's going back and forth with this lady. Next thing you know, we get a letter in the mail saying we need to go to the Atlantic City Courthouse uh, because they're being taken to court for this. So at 10 years old, I'm in a courtroom, suit on, looking at this judge, admonish me for doing this. And I remember looking back at my mummy in the courtroom and she is like disappointed, discouraged that her last baby, her last pain is uh, putting her through this situation, feeling like we may get deported, like back to the Bahamas. I mean, all thoughts were going through her head and I felt terrible by putting my parents in that position. Because I was always a good student and always a good athlete, but I didn't feel like my behavior had to match the other aspects of my life because they always told me, just do well in school, do well in sports, and you'll be okay. And that's kind of how I felt about it, but thankfully, to the grace of God, a really good lawyer, some community advocates who came and said that I was a good person, I had to do a little bit of community service. All I had to do was say I'm sorry to the young man, and it didn't end up on my, my record. And at that point, I moved away from that temper, that anger, reacting like that to people who would call me racial names growing up in a white suburban town outside of Atlantic City, New Jersey. And, uh, and then I joined the school band. I went to student government. 
I even acted as a white Russian Jewish milkman in the school play, fill on the roof. <laughs> I mean, I was doing, I was trying to do it all, man. And that really sort of took me from the direction. If if I had gone down that juvenile detention, man, <laughs> and gone in that bad situation, yeah, I wouldn't be here with y'all brothers right now for sure. So, how were you so a white? Real. How were you a white man and fill on hey, the roof? Hey, man, I was all in. I was all in. I was all in. That was terrible casting. <laughs> hey, the craziest thing about it though. I had, I had it, so I had five white daughters too, right? And one of the daughters I liked, and I'm like, man, this is kind of awkward. And I got to kiss my daughter. I said, but let me get a little extra kiss because I like her a little bit. Oh, man. The play director was like, nah, man, you can't do that. I was like, oh, man, let me try to get in, get in where I fit in. I was skimming through chapter eight, man. I think that's my favorite chapter, Rookie Again. I'm pretty sure for you, it put a lot of things into perspective when you go from one, you know, career, you know, to another one where you have to work equally. That's hard, man, and uh, I think this book, I can't wait to dive into it. I just skimmed chapter eight, man. I, I think it's great so far. Thank you, brother. You know, so, I mean, it. I think, you know, for, for our show, uh, a huge part of, of what we've wanted to do from the beginning was talk about the pivots in life. And I can't tell you how many messages, DMs I've gotten with people wanting you to come on the show because from a, a visible standpoint, it's probably the most unusual but also profound pivot we've seen an athlete have kind of in the prime of his life as well. It wasn't like you did this after playing 15 years and you could just let the game go. So I think I, I want you to do two things. I normally rap the show. Fred has rapped it recently. Um, so I'm going to let you rap it today. I want you to tell us why the pivot in life was so important to you, to where you are. Tell us when and where we can get your book. Well, I appreciate y'all boys, man. I really do. Um, first, let me start off that. I know it's, it's, um, this is a wonderful platform that I've been able to follow and see the work that you do. I have uh, group chats back in the Bahamas with my fraternity brothers, with everybody. And we all talk about what y'all guys say on the show and what you guys do. It's real. I mean, we watch it almost like as therapy in a way. Like, hey, what do you think about this? Did you agree with that? Did you not agree with that? RC, I've known you for over a decade or so, and I appreciate you, brother. Uh, being a member of our fraternity, but just being a brother and close to me, I appreciate that. Fred, you know, I've known you since working out with Samari out here yeah. in South Florida. And I remember talking to Samari, I said, man, Fred's got some good feet, man. This boy is... <laughs> <laughs> he, he said, man, you should have watched him when he was at UF, man. We had to play them twice, and they yeah. beat us the second time for the national championship. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, no, I appreciate you, brother, and obviously yes, being, being a Bahamian, too. Mm -hmm. And Shannon, you know, it's my first time meeting you, brother, but I've obviously seen you and, and followed you as well, dog on the field, and just how you've taken to the next level. Um, and, and what you add to the show, it's, it's phenomenal. My wife loves you too, so <laughs> she's, uh, she's a huge fan. But, you know, I think for me, man, the, the, the pivot from going from one chapter of life to another is so important. It's not, it's not something that happens overnight, right? This was like a, a thought about process. This was premeditated. This was something that we worked towards. And, and if anyone wants to box you into a category that says you only can do one or the other, uh, refute that, deny that, move away from that and say, look, I can be what I want to be. I can continue to develop as an athlete, as a student, as a leader, as a thinker. All these things can coexist in your body as long as you have that rhythm, have that pace and take things 2% at a time. Small victories. You don't have to accomplish it all tomorrow. You don't have to accomplish it all by next week. Just take it one step at a time and uh, you will see uh, that you'll have success. I think something else in the pivot for me, going from football to neurosurgery uh, that's been so vital is using what football has taught me to be a good physician. And we already talked about it, communication, overcoming adversity, discipline, focus, knowing what the grind feels like, knowing what that grind, that tough work feels like, hard work, that's irreplaceable. You can do that in any field, law, business, media, writing, literature, whatever, whatever it is. You can use what your prior life has taught you, infuse that into what you're doing now, have success and lift up other people as you do it. So we're excited about it, this book, uh, you can get it anywhere you, uh, you get your books, Barnes & Noble's, Amazon. It's all on my social media pages, Twitter, Facebook, everywhere. Mm -hmm. We're excited about it. This is my first time putting something like this on paper. I really wasn't going to at the time because I said to myself, man, no one really wants to hear my story right now. But I had enough people believing in me said, you know what, you need to because somebody can unlock their future by seeing your story and by hearing your pivot and hearing your transition and how you've made it and they can do the same thing. So I definitely appreciate y'all brothers. Man, right. thank you, man. We that was appreciate amazing. You appreciate you more, man. man. Sure. Right. You. Do yeah. your thing. I might be smarter than him. No, you're not. Oh. You're not. <laughs> My dad. No. Appreciate you. What else? Amazing, dog. All love, man. All the love. I'm I'm going to get smarter, man. You go to other way. I'm going to get smarter.
Freddie. Obviously, we're talking all that shit about he know more about <laughs> basketball than us. Hey, he missed. <laughs> <laughs> little goofy bastards on ESPN. <laughs> we all garbage. Yeah, we, we was garbage. all garbage last week. We're going to bounce back, baby. Yeah, no, we suck. This week, I'm going to be better. Yeah. Because it's Freaky Freddy on a Friday the 13th. My oh. pick's going to be solid. Oh, I'm scared My, my pick's going to be solid. Get on it. It's, it's so easy, man. Right. It's super easy. But not only that, you got to hop in this Pivot merch. We got new colors coming. We're we doing so much. We out here grinding for y'all. We love y'all. Thanks for the support. But get in the prize picks. Trust me. Make a couple dollars. Whatever you put in, they match it. They match it. Listen, they match it. Free money, easy money. Get it in. Y'all, check our social media. I'm telling y'all we're going to kill it this weekend. Go in the bio. Look at the links. We all there. Y'all come have fun with it. See if you can beat me. Because I don't think y'all can beat me. We're gonna can beat you. We're going to post our pick on social media. Y'all know where it's at. Twitter, Instagram. You TikTok, Freddie? I don't know what TikTok is. Okay. On TikTok. Well, I'm going to Instagram and tweet mine. Y'all let me know. Y'all hit me. Y'all tweet me and let me know if you whoop me. But I'm telling you, I feel good about this weekend. It's big time, playoff time. This is when you really see who can play ball. And I know who can play ball. See if you know who can play ball. Screenshot us your picks. We want to see how well you did. Send it to Pivot. IG page. Listen, 75% of the states, we're in Florida, so we're good. California, Texas, you're good. Everywhere else, you're good. That don't even matter. Just screenshot us your picks. Let us see how you did. Link is in the bio. Prize picks. Our partner, use the promo code PIVOT, and you're good. Let's get it. Watch out, y'all. I ain't gonna let y'all see too much, but watch out, baby. <laughs> Hold up. Limitless. I'm in it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant. Way I'm feeling, get me up. Uh, on the mission, get me up. Knowing uh, me, I got the key. Uh, on the vision, I can trust. Uh, trust. Uh, limitless. Niggas, I'm in it. I father here to witness it. Got my people feeling militant.